our rights, in other words, when, we, when, the, when Europeans first came, we considered ourselves, as did the, the fishermen, as did the newcomers, they figured that we owned the land, that we owned all the fish, and that's why they were buying it all from us, right? We'd moved from that process where we're fishing seven days a week to a regime where now, given fishing nets, given times to fish, given sizes of nets to fish, all of this restriction on our fishing, and we were called food fishermen. All of this was done without our consent. It's not my idea. This idea comes from the old people. I'm only repeating to you what they've told to me and to many other people. Swale, good day to all of our podcast listeners. Aalia Telsquit Home Tisquit to Stalo Nation. My name is Aalia Warbus, and I'm the host of the Stalo Signal monthly podcast. We are just getting into season three, standing in our strength, and our goal this season is to raise up our communities and our people. We believe in Stalo. We are a strong, sovereign people, and we love raising the volume on voices from our communities. Stay with us this season as we have many great stories and interviews lined up for the coming months. Here at the Stalo Signal, we love to hear your feedback. And in a survey that we've got up on our podcast website, one commenter mentioned they wanted to hear more history. Well, we've recently rediscovered this amazing audio of a talk that Grand Chief Stephen Point gave at an event in Scowlook in 2018. We are the people of the river, and here is one of our most inspiring leaders talking about the history of why our access to the fish in our rivers is so complicated. This podcast is brought to you by the Stalo Kohwama government, and as you may know, our chiefs are the negotiating team for a new relationship with Canada and the province. Well, fish is a hugely important topic for Stalo people, and I know it's on the minds of our community members as well. We know there are rules imposed on us about when and how we can fish. But how many know about the salmon trade when white people first came, or the impact of the processing plants that grew up along the big rivers, the Fisheries Act or how the International Salmon Commission came into being and why it is important? Grand Chief Point talks about all of this and more, including his family's fish weir at the mouth of the Sumas River, and why First Nations use nets instead of barricades, and how that might change back again. So sit back, listen, and learn. Talk about this information with your family and community, then get back to us with your thoughts at outreach at sxta.bc.ca. What's, what's important about history is that it provides answers, I think, for um, questions that young people and people who haven't been involved to sort of understand um, the building blocks that have led us to what we're doing now. And <clears throat> um, one of the things that we have to negotiate in the treaty is a clause on fishing. We've got to 
decide uh, the position that we want to take in relation to the salmon, right? The coho and the sockeye and the sturgeon, the spring salmon, uh, all of the, the hooligans, all of those fisheries, right? And I think that, that if, if you were going to the, to the table to negotiate, say we, we asked you to go and sit down and, and begin to uh, negotiate a position or what we want from fishery, fisheries, <clears throat> most of us would ask the question, well, you know, where do I begin when I start thinking about creating a position for fishing? How do we begin to even think about it or wrap our mind around what's happened in the area of fishing so that I can make a logical presentation or one that makes sense in the, in the context of where we are today, right? So the context that I'm thinking about is the legal context, some of the cases that have come about, some of the legislation that's happened around fishing, some of the agreements that have already happened around fishing, because we actually are under a treaty right now in relation to fishing. Um, and some of the social realities as well, some of the social uh, contexts that we're faced with in our communities and, and the, about the fish themselves. The most important historical context about the salmon is that the salmon industry on the west coast has collapsed. Uh, it's, it, used to be, it used to be what kept a lot of towns on the west coast alive, the, the west coast fishery. We had thousands and millions and millions of salmon coming up the Skeena River and the Fraser River. You know, there was a time when the elders said you could throw a flat rock out onto the river and it wouldn't sink for a long time just because there was so much darn fish there. And you know, in, in, in times of plenty, you know, there's not so much worry or concern about the, uh, my share of the fishing when there's so much fish. Um, it's really in times when there's not very much fish that people begin to look around and say, well, who's, who's fishing in my spot? Or, you know, can we share this sort of thing? And what is my, how much should I get out of the fishing, right? And so the other social context is this, it's this issue of should we sell the fish or should we just eat it, you know? Should we actually use it as a commercial commodity? Um, or should we just preserve it as, as salmon, right? And just can it and smoke it and do what we want. That's a social question that is facing us today. And it's part of the historical context that I wanna get through with in, in our discussion today. So at the end of that discussion today, um, I, I hope you can have the answer as to whether or not we ought to sell or not to sell, right? Um, but let's, let's go through some of the historical context that, that, that uh, uh, is the legal basis for what I think our claims need to be. Um, when the Europeans first began arriving, of course, in 1858, they didn't come for salmon. They came for the gold. It was the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company that were moving from Montreal westward. They were coming on these Voyager canoes. You see these romantic Voyager canoes, big, big canoes that were, they were guided by Aboriginal, in, Aboriginal people. And what they were looking for is expanding the fur trade 
from, from Montreal in Quebec City. And these companies were buying furs and selling them in China. So they would take them and they would sell them in China and they would buy tea in China and buy uh, spices and then bring those back to England. They were also selling fur in, in, um, in, in France and in England. Um, a lot of the, uh, the beaver hats that you see even today, they used to take the beaver fur, cut it off of the skin and pound it and make what's called felt out of it. So the felt beaver hats were thick felt. That was made from beaver, right? And, and, um, and so there was a big market for that. But when they got to the West Coast, as, as it was when they got to the East Coast, these companies found the waters full of fish, right? And, and so when Hudson's Bay Company established a fort in Langley around 19, 1821, they started to buy fish from the Indians and put them in these great big kegs and salt them. They would then ship those to China and sell them, right? So in those days, the, the, uh, the Indians here on the Fraser um, would not only sell fur, which they were selling, they were selling fur to us as they, but they were also selling them live, fresh salmon. The Hudson's Bay never gave out money to anybody. What they would do is, for so many fish, they would give you a pound of bacon, or they would give you some clothing, or they'd give you some, a gun or something like that. But it was always in trade, right? So that these, this is why these places were called trading posts. They didn't actually uh, give you money, they, they gave you something in trade. Uh, some of the old truck stations, they used to even sell feathers uh, uh, for the ladies' hats in Europe. Everybody liked these hats. Some of these hats even had birds' nests on them, right? <laughs> um, with birds on them, uh, the stuffed birds, but the hats were a big thing with feathers. Anyway, um, so when the companies came, and in the early 1800s, they began to, to, to harvest from, to buy from the Indians the, um, the salmon. There was no licensing. Nobody asked whether the Indians could or couldn't. It was just another commodity that they bought from the Indians, right? And even from the earliest times on the West Coast, when the ships used to come in from France and from Germany and from Russia, Holland, wherever these ships came from, Spain, they used to buy things like firewood from the Indians. And the Indians understood that they owned the wood, but they would sell, and they would sell this wood to the big ships. Well, as settlers began to come in, especially after the gold rush in 1858, people began staying here on the lower mainland they began to, to, to want to open up what was called processing plants. That is, plants that would freeze fish, cut fish, salt fish, and actually sell it, right? So these processing plants at Steveson were opening up. They were opening up all the way up the coast, even uh, uh, at Prince Rupert, it was uh, Port Edward, where the big fish processing plants were opened up. They were opened up at, on the Skeena and uh, on the Nass Rivers as well. And, and a lot of native people would go there during the fishing season to work in these plants and stay there, right? And stay at Steveston and, and, and uh, stay at Newestminster. They would stay there in these fish plants. Well, 
the Indians were still selling, right? What happened was that these, these, these fish plants at Stevenson and all up the coast, um, they started to build their own boats to do their own fishing. They began to object to the fact that the Indians were, were fishing and selling the fish from the inland waters. We got to understand this one legal, his, legal uh, distinction between tidal waters and non-tidal waters. When the tide comes in, and it comes in as far as mission as tidal waters, at the mission bridge down to the ocean, that's federal jurisdiction under tidal waters. Under non-tidal waters, where the tide doesn't affect the river anymore, that's provincial jurisdiction. The provincial government has the right to make the laws. Well, guess what? The Stolo Nation mostly lives in non-tidal waters. But it was the federal government who had lawmaking powers over the Indians that began to pass laws with regard to fishing. And no one's ever challenged them on this, even though they probably don't have the constitutional right to do so. The first law they passed with regard to fishing is that Indians, this was in the late 1800s under the Fisheries Act, they, they, uh, because of pressure from the canneries, they said the Indians could no longer sell their fish. They invented this word called food fishing. <laughs> they said the Indians could only food fish. And, <laughs> and it was because of the pressure from the canneries that, that the definition of what we would just call ordinary fishing, all of a sudden, we were, our, our practice became called food fishing. That was it. And so the notion of food fishing was born out of a federal act, the Fisheries Act. It wasn't something that we created. Uh, it wasn't something that, that was uh, uh, done by the province. It was actually done by the federal government. Sport fishing, when people go out there with a fishing rod, is, is controlled by the provincial government. To get a license to do that, you go to the province. To get a license to do commercial fishing in tidal waters, you have to go to the federal government. For an Indian to get a license to go fishing, you went to the federal government as well. Now, when I started fishing back in the, night, late, the, the late 50s, right with my dad, we had a fishing spot up in Yale. We used to fish there, and this is after the Second World War, right? No one was bothering us about selling fish. The fisheries officers knew we were selling fish. We used to go out to the side of the road with a trailer full of fish. I used to sell them for a dollar a piece, even the humpbacks. And the white people would buy them. Uh, we used to sell them to the, to the judge that delivered right behind the courthouse. Police officers would stop and take fish home for their wives. The reason the federal government was turning a blind eye to their own act that said Indians couldn't sell fish is because they realized that the Indians were using a little bit of the money to, to offset their needs so that they didn't want them to become a burden on the state. So they wanted them to continue to sell the fish. They just turned a blind eye to it, even though it was written in their federal law, right? When I grew up in the 1950s, we sold our fish, and, and all of that was normal. Then they had the Hell's Gate incident, and the Hell's Gate incident is where 
And, I, and I'm pretty sure this happened when they were building the railway through, that the, at Hell's Gate had a huge slide that happened and it blocked the river off. And a lot of fish died that year. They couldn't, people were trying to bring them up above the slide. And, and um, so it, at that time, the Canadian government and the American government met under an international agreement, decided that they would form the International Salmon Commission. And the International Salmon Commission had Canadians on it and Americans on it. And what they said, uh, the first thing that the, the Americans says, because they helped pay for the fish ladders that were saving fish at Hell's Gate, they wanted half the say over Canadian fish. Control. And Canada gave it to them uh, uh, under the International Salmon, Salmon Commission Agreement. Well, all the fish now that were coming into the Fraser, into the Skeena, this International Salmon Commission sat down and decided then how much was going to go for conservation. They need about 35% for what's called escapement, so the fish can lay their eggs. 5% were going to go to sport fishermen. 5% for the Indians, and the rest was going to go for commercial fishing. And that was the pattern that was set. 5% for the Indians. Food fishing. That's what they called it, right? And again, they caught the food fishing title from the, from the Fisheries Act because the canneries complained that the Indians were fishing in, in uh, non-tidal waters and selling their fish. My mother was raised at the uh, mouth of the uh, Vedder Canal. Vedder Canal now uh, flows into the Sumas River and it, it, it comes out at what's called Devil's Run on the Fraser River. She, my great-grandmother, Thetsimia, had a, had a longhouse right there and she also had what's called a Chiactal. The Chiactal was, was Chiactal, its, its name is Chiactal, which is a fish weir. And the fish weir my grandmother owned right at the mouth of that river. Well, Bisseries decided that this method of stopping the fish from coming up to the river, right, by a fish weir, was bad for the fish. They didn't like it that the Indians had these fish weirs all along the system. So they asked the federal government, again, to have the Indians tear these fish weirs down. Even though the Indians had been practicing fish weirs for well, a millennia, there was a fish weir at Chiactal on the Vedder, for, on the, what was then the Chilliwack River. There certainly was a, a Chiactals all up and down the system. And it was our way of managing the fish. What we used to do is we'd go out in the morning and open the gates from the fish baskets that collected fish, and we'd let so many out. But before we'd let them out, we'd take some to eat, right? And this method of controlling the fish was our management process. We, we were able to count the fish. We were able to know when lots were going through, right? And we were able to know what was going through. But they actually asked us to tear down our fish weirs and they gave us fishing nets interplaced. That was called the Barricades Agreement. The Barricades Agreements went all the way from here 
all the way up to uh, Burns Lake. They still have barricades agreements there too. People ask us why do Indians have nets to fish in a river because you know, they, it, nobody else can have nets in the river? That's why. They asked us to take our fish weir down and they gave us nets to fish instead. And so, so was born this whole notion that Indians were going to give a net to fish, but they would, they would regulate us. They said you can't have a net longer than 90 fathoms if it was a set net. You couldn't have a net longer than 30 fathoms. They would restrict the size of our mesh. Pretty soon they were telling us what days to fish. And uh, the restrictions began to come on because we were using the net that they gave us, right? Uh, and so we, all of a sudden we have these, our people were going to jail and paying fines because they would be fishing on the wrong day. We used to fish seven days a week, right? Because there was a lot of fish. Uh, and then we were only allowed to fish for four or three days a week. And now it's, of course, uh, we're very lucky to get hours of fishing in. So in the backdrop of these changes, right, this, this whole notion of food fishing being born out of federal legislation, this whole notion that, um, the, um, that, that um, we began to be regulated because we lost our fish weirs, we gave them up as a part of the, uh, uh, part of the barricades agreements that we signed. Um, and um, our rights, in other words, when, we, when, the, when the Europeans first came, we considered ourselves, as did the, the fishermen, as did the newcomers, they figured that we owned the land, that we owned all the fish, and that's why they were buying it all from us, right? We'd moved from that process where we're fishing seven days a week to a regime where now given fishing nets, given times to fish, given sizes of nets to fish, all of this restriction on our fishing, and we were called food fishermen. All of this was done without our consent. All of this was done without our uh, informed um, uh, uh, understanding of the laws. The only thing that we'd agreed to, as far as I understand, is the changing of the barricades into nets. Well, you've got to understand that the treaty making in the United States was progressing across the nation. As Lewis and Clark was traveling across, I don't know if you know the, the great story of Lewis and Clark discovering the West, a lot of baloney of course, because they were guided by Indians all the way across. But um, the, the great Western expansion in the United States was happening there was a huge swath of Indian territory in the United States. Uh, I don't know if you watch the other old movies, they used to call it, they used to even talk about the Indian territory. And, and um, um, what happened, of course, was, was that uh, the, uh, the settlers were finally given the right to, uh, uh, to move into the Indian territory and take up land. And they lined them up one day on this uh, artificial boundary shot a gun and everybody took off on their horses and, and to stake out their land in Indian territory. Well, the Western expansion, as they were moving west, they were writing treaties with the Indians. When they got to Washington State, there was a huge fishery. The, the, the treaty that covered the northwest part of, of, uh, uh, of Washington State, the Lummi Indians, all the, 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 the Swinomish Indians, gave 
to the Indians in common. This is a legal word, in common, the fisheries. When that treaty was brought to court by Judge Bolger in a recent decision well, within 20 years ago, 30 years ago, he determined that words in common meant half. <laughs> what did we get? We got 50%, remember? We got 5%. I mean, what did they get? 50% under the treaty. We got 5% simply as a matter of government policy, something we'd never agreed to, and we're still getting 5%. Well, Judge Bolt, in his wisdom, said that, that the treaty meant, in common, meant that they, the, Indians in, the Indians get half the fish. Guess who ended up on the International Salmon Commission <laughs> with the other commercial fishermen? The Lummi Indians. And the Lummi Indians now have a full seat on the International Salmon Commission where they actually decide how much fish everybody gets, right? So we approached them and said, can, we, can you work with us? The Lummi said, sure, <laughs> right? We're, we're related, related to most of them, right? And, and um, so this is the question. We finally get to the point where the government's saying, okay, Indians in BC, Indians in Stalo Nation, what do you want for fishing under a treaty, right? And we've got to direct our negotiators so that they know what, what to do, right? In the context of the fishing industry collapsing, there's not a lot of fish out there anymore. That's reality. In the historical context, historically, we've only been given 5%, the same as the sports fishermen. in the historical reality that the Bolt decision interpreted the treaty in the, in the states that they have half the, the salmon that go into their waters, which come into our waters. They just go by them on their way to the Fraser. So in the context of this historic reality that food fishing was never our idea, and also on the, in the context that we have barricades that were taken down. And guess what? The Department of Fisheries has now determined that barricades are a good idea. <laughs> they said, this is really the best way to monitor fishing. We'd like you to go back to barricades. <laughs> right? We're going, going, you guys make up your mind. Right? Every year, literally thousands and millions of fish disappear. They don't know where they went to. They just don't come up the river, right? The environment's changing, the world's changing. Nobody seems to know why these fish aren't coming up the river. But guess who gets blamed for taking too much river in the, in the uh, non-tile waters? We do. You know, they, uh, there was a time, of course, when I was growing up, they didn't have much enforcement. Now, in times of scarcity, there's a lot of enforcement. We started to see fisheries officers following us around, telling us he can't sell anymore. Why? Because the International Salmon Commission heard that the indigenous people on the Fraser who got 5% were selling their fish. And they said, if these Indians are selling their fish, we want their numbers added to the division that we get 
for commercial fishing. That would give the Americans more fish then. The federal government said, well, no, 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 we'll stop them from selling the fish. Don't worry about that. So they started to really clamp down. Whereas before they weren't worried about Indians selling fish, now they are because of the International Salmon Commission. So fishing is an interesting story, right? Fishing is, is an interesting history that most of us aren't aware of. We're not really involved in a lot of this, right? And, and it's not really taught to our students in school about fishing, right, and the history of fishing. But the truth is, is that we in British Columbia are starting from a position where we once had the whole industry ourselves, and there was all kinds of fish. Now we don't have that. What we've got is uh, we've got a 5% slice of the pie. That's what we've got right now. There was another important case that came out of musquims called the Sparrow case. And the question that the, the Supreme Court of Canada had to consider was whether or not um, Aboriginal people had a right to fish, had a right to, uh, um, given what they said in Derrickson, that, that because um, uh, the native fishing was regulated, that there seemed to be no rights that the Indians had anymore. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada said in Sparrow, yes, they do have a, a, an indigenous right to fish, and it's only second to conservation. After the Indians get their fish, then the sports gets their fish, and after them, the commercial industry. So we're only second in priority, according to the Supreme Court of Canada, for getting fish. Right? But second doesn't give you anywhere if there ain't any fish, for one thing. And second doesn't get us anywhere if we start at and we end at only 5%. Right? When we started to uh, work on this fishing problem years ago after I became a chief, in 1975, I began to look around and see what we were doing. What, what, what was happening is that Burns Mussel and Sam Douglas and a few of the other leaders had formed what was called uh, a fishing um, committee. Burns, I think, was the president for some time. And the fishing committee was made up of fishermen. These are people that actually were on the river doing the fishing. And these fishermen began to meet with DFO on their own, right? to start doing what was then called a fisheries plan. The fisheries plan was that year, how many fish you were gonna get. That was the fishing plan. How much would we give for the dry rack fishing? Would we get any of the hooligans? How much of the sockeye we would get? When we could go fishing? That's called a fishing plan. And this, this notion of, of including us in this plan was for 5% though, right? And so the uh, Burns Mussel and, and the other fishermen were meeting with DFO. And what began happening was that they, they finally arrived at this notion, the federal government, they didn't care anymore. They said, we don't care if you eat your fish or sell your fish, whatever you're getting, you're only getting 5% anyway. We don't care. So let's, we'll let you get an agreement so that every time the fisheries happens, as part of the fisheries plan, 
we will allow you to sell fish under this agreement. So a lot of the First Nations signed up on that, right? A lot of the, and, and it would require a BCR, and you could sign up on these fishing agreements, and then you would, um, they started holding phone, telephone conference calls with DFO, and uh, they would determine if, when the openings would be, what size nets you could use, all that sort of stuff, part of the fisheries plan. All of this is going on in the context, of course, of us sitting down and trying to figure out what our treaty right is going to be, right? What, what do we want in the treaty? A lot of the First Nations north of us, or, or yeah, north of us, complained that the Indians in the Fraser Valley were selling their fish. And they were saying they're selling their aboriginal rights or selling their birthright to the salmon. And that, that they disagreed with us selling the fish. And a lot of our own people in the valley took the same position. They didn't like the idea of us commercializing the salmon. Um, there were some bands who didn't like the fishing agreements at all because they said it didn't recognize the aboriginal right to fish, right? The aboriginal right that was determined in the Sparrow decision. So Chiam, for example, would never and still does not sign a fisheries agreement. So you've got this social context. Not, not only are we in an era where the salmon industry has collapsed, but we also have a concern into our community as to whether or not we ought to even sign these fisheries agreements or whether we should, we should uh, somehow preserve our Aboriginal rights by, by not signing anything or whether we should sign them so that we can prevent our fishermen from getting arrested for selling their fish, right? So it's a complicated, a complicated question. Now, at this point, Grand Chief starts to go into his thoughts on what should be negotiated and how to come to this position. He talks about bringing the fishermen into the discussion, but also others in the community, like you and me. We've edited some of his thoughts because this part of Salatzamat, or Our One Thought, otherwise known as the Stalo Huhwalmuk Treaty, is still being discussed. But I'm concerned this of this, that it can't be just fishermen deciding the issue of fish, right? Because fish belongs to everybody, not just the ones harvesting them. Do you understand? Um, that you and I have an interest in the salmon, even if we don't go fishing, right? Because we'd like to continue to have fish as part of our daily menu. The interest that fishermen have is to catch the fish, but they also want to sell their fish, a lot of them that sign these agreements. So their interests sometimes are not the same, right, as those who are just interested in getting fish for uh, their potlatches, getting fish for their families. So there's competing interests there that need to be somehow balanced, right? The other concern is that over the last 15 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, we've seen a vast disparity. In, sometimes we get a lot of fish, sometimes we get really, really less fish. And we get really low fish, sometimes we don't get any fish at all, right? And the question then is, is how do we balance that out? How do we balance that out so that even in the low years, we still have some canning to do? We can still fish and get some, 
some dry fish, right? And I think that's a question that, that needs to be explored in the round table, is how do we balance out so that even in low years, the native people would get some fish for the tables. Special permits is another one where people have ceremonies or funerals and whatnot. The other area that needs to be discussed is something about habitat protection. How do we protect the salmon and, and, the, and the, the spawning areas? How do we conserve fish so that future generations, in fact, have the same rights and access that we have today? So there's a lot to discuss, but I think that collectively we have to have an understanding of what's happened historically so that we have a way of, first of all, dialoguing and talking about it, and secondly, uh, uh, a way of coming to some decision about what should be on the table for negotiators to talk about. So that's it. That's our second episode of Standing in Our Strength. Grand Chief left some other thoughts to ponder at the end of the talk, like how to manage dry rack fishing and how commercialization of our fish can cause conflict within families. He talked a bit about the Cowichans, who are claiming they have a historic right to fish in our spots on our river. If you are Stalo, the people of the river, what do you want to talk about when it comes to fishing? Drop us a line, and thank you for all of your support over our three seasons. Don't forget to leave a review, as that helps other listeners find us. Or let us know what you think by email at outreach at sxta.bc.ca. If you are just hearing this podcast for the first time, I hope you get a chance to check out earlier episodes, which you can find by searching for podcasts on our website at sxta.bc.ca. You can also do the survey right there. We really appreciate your feedback. Yaku kwasai and talk to you soon. Oh, no.